Hold up. Fuck. <laughs> Start again. <laughs> Take two. Nope. Shut up. Shut it. The first one was really good. First time it I was. Yeah. Welcome once again to It Is Complicated, the podcast where we answer every single question with It Is Complicated, including the title of this podcast, which is also It Is Complicated. Hello, Dr. J. Hello, Josephine. I am again in your space, sitting beside you in the world. How are you today? Uh, I am sleep deprived, but otherwise, okay, question mark. I am appropriately caffeinated for recording this time, not over caffeinated. Excellent. Well, with that in mind, please do tell and inform the listener as to whom you are. As to who I am. Hey, I'm Dr. J. I use they as a pronoun. I am from the self-defining future. I got to give myself the job title Harbinger of Change, thanks to ThoughtWorks, where you get to write your own job title. And if you get given that opportunity, why not be this fabulous? And I also got to write my own gender, thanks to the New Zealand government. So I have an official gender. I have the pieces of paper to prove it. And that is I am transgressive, non-binary, genderqueer. I'm a troublemaker and a hashtag queer nuisance as if the last two minutes or five minutes or any of the episodes you've, you've listened to haven't given that away. Good morning, Josephine. How are you? Good morning. How are you? Uh, <laughs> and it is a good morning because it is in the morning, dear listener. We're, we're recording this uh, in the morning uh, in Stockholm, Sweden, together in the same person. In Jarfala. In Jarfala. Hello, my name is Josephine Baird. I am an artist and academic. I currently am a lecturer at the University of Uppsala Game Design Department, teaching on game design, funnily enough. I'm also a PhD student at the University of Vienna, also doing my PhD on game design, specifically on how games can help trans people be happy. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. I have to think about that. Be be happy. (laughs) Be themselves. I used to spend a great deal of time treading the boards prior to this uh, as an actor, but I may be returning in the near future. Still no news. Sorry, listener. It's been three weeks of this, or it's been three podcasts where I've teased you mercilessly with information, but hopefully I shall have some soon and you can have it too. I also like to think of myself as a femme of international mystery because it's awesome. So we are in the same place, Jay. I know. It is quite amazing and the last episode we did was also in the same place even though these are probably going to be released out of order so you'll have some episodes where we've recorded virtually like most of them and then there are some episodes where we're able to record face to face because eventually we finally thanks to covid and lockdowns and travel and everything managed to be in the same building at the same time i know and how does that make you feel to put on my therapist feel um It feels good to be in the same space, but it's also, I think we've got the vibe that works when we're also not in the same space because we're so used to it. I've gotten so used to seeing you on screen that when we're talking, I've learnt your cues from one angle and now we're talking, we're sitting at a slightly different angle on the cameras (laughs) and I need to figure out your cues of when you're winding up a sentence and things like that. I mean, it was four years before we were able to be back in the same room yeah what's that 2018 was that in london in 2018 yeah you came over and did some talks at thoughtworks and i was there ostensibly to present at the british psychological society which was a very fancy thing to do and oh my god um dear listener i was presenting a paper called something along the lines of i can't believe i'm presenting this paper again 20 years later colon a trans exclusionary radical feminist in the 21st century <laughs> something along those lines turfs don't change i thought that was sardonic i covered all the basic arguments because dear listener I, I did study this as part of my master's degree 20 years ago and uh, that was the paper but uh, of course <laughs> totally totally irrelevant didn't need to do that clearly no 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 okay. no it has no relevance whatsoever to what's going on today in the sphere of public Discourse. So why don't, why don't we talk about something a bit less um, dour? The thing about being in person, Jay, is that we can have long protracted conversations, not necessarily recorded, dear listener, you've missed out on some of these, but we can have conversations in which 
we amble and preamble on topics as far and wide as one mm. can imagine, including yesterday. I think we were talking about, for me, when I try to change my voice to read more as cis, the easiest way for me to do it is by affecting a received pronunciation accent, which for those of you who already think I sound like a pompous British person... <laughs> Believe me, it can get worse. Oh, it can. Oh, it can. Uh, because received pronunciation, for those of you who are interested, is a form of English speaking that sounds a bit like this. And received pronunciation is very proper English, but it is not the most pompous one can go. One can get significantly more pompous. For example, one can use the Queen's English, which, if you are uh, being literal, is in fact the standard of English one must speak at all times, because the Queen's English is, by tradition actually the English language. So if you were actually speaking English properly, you would be speaking like the Queen. There you go. Good Lord. Isn't that painful? I learned that at my British school when I got there at age mm -hmm. 10 and had no idea how to spell. And I remember one of the first experiences I had with the British language was being told to write on a textbook that this was a rough book because, of course, in England one has a neat book where one does one's neat final work and a rough book where one does one's rough working out. And I wrote R-U-F-F because, of course, mm. rough, that's how you spell rough. I put in the extra F because I knew English was weird and so therefore would mm. probably have two Fs at the end. And I was laughed at and instructed this was not the case by fellow students and I asked them, well, how do you spell it? And their answer was, of course, it's R-O-U-G-H. And I was like, you are lying. You are a lying liar. You lie. You filthy, filthy liar. And uh, naturally, I was incorrect. So there you go. That's the kind of thing we talk about when you're not here, listener. Absolutely. And it rolls around into various long discourses. And then we'll suddenly sit there and go, God, we should have been recording the last 10 minutes because that was really good. For those of you who've listened to the last two episodes, the first one was probably our um, manifesto for the future, uh, followed by a interview with one of our favourite people in the world, the darling, dear Auntie Kate Bornstein. And today we are going to talk about... Ambition. Ambition. And how it's complicated when it's difficult to have. Yes. Because surviving is enough. And that makes ambition... Well, it's not impossible, but it just is very different to the other people around me in my work, in my job, in how I do things. I get asked questions like, where do you want to be in 10 years? A, my first answer is just to break down and just be like, I can't even imagine being alive in 10 years because that's not being a secure, stable, positive, possible thought for such a long time. And... The very sweet person who asked me this then teared up because he never thought that that could be a thing for somebody to not be able to think that far in the future. And I'm still trying to figure out where I want to be in 10 years time. I'm still trying to figure out what I want to be. And some of it, it came up in our planning around the ambition for this podcast. What is ambition for us? What do we want to be? And that can often be quite different from our peers because we have to spend so much effort on, well, simply fucking surviving this nightmare of a post-apocalyptic chaos nightmare that we've landed ourselves in. Thank you, society. Ambition in that sense is, I think, very much linked to a notion of chrononormativity and normativities overall. Mm. Because, again, not to hark back to the British school, which I ended up in at 10 years old, I moved into a very middle-class British environment after being in not such a middle-class environment <laughs> in Holland. And the first thing that's really weird, a Britishness, and I think I can speak of this because I've come from there and I say with love to all my British friends and all our listeners, is a very weird place and has some very strange standards, especially if you're in the Hemkindes, which is a place just outside of London. It's uh, the ring around London, isn't it? It's the ring it around London. It goes all the way out to the coast and then kind of comes up, doesn't touch Wales. Yeah, and it's kind of... <laughs> it's everybody who doesn't want to live in London and yet still wants to have some connection there too. So therefore it is, as you can imagine, dear listener, a very, very particular kind of people. Now, I'm not saying that all of the people that were living in my particular village were that way, but a significant portion of... I've been to uh, your village. You have. Uh, and so you can attest to this. And so, not to offend anyone in, in dear Buckinghamshire, but... Wow. Um, when I went to school there, 
there was always this notion of like, what will you do next and what will you become? Have you no ambition is the question that would be asked of any child who dare to show anything other than cowering subjection and, and, and a need to uh, succeed in the very narrow sense of the word. Did you hear people saying, Mummy, I want to be a banker when I grow up? Uh, they didn't say that because, of course, they wouldn't be allowed to show such affection as saying to someone, <laughs> Mummy. Uh, no, <laughs> it's not that brutal. It's pretty brutal. Yeah, it actually kind of was. No, it's <laughs> I ended in high school. Every single person I knew became an accountant. Every single one. And it was weird. I would ask my fellow students like at the end of the high school period like why are you becoming an accountant and they genuinely didn't have an answer and I felt sort of bad I, I don't want to presume that these people are desperately unhappy and that some of them may are really thrilled to be accountants there's nothing no slander to accounting very useful skill that I do not have and so I have tremendous respect for anybody who chooses to go in that field but it seemed to be very much the default for a particular group of people because that was the trajectory and therefore their ambition to succeed in that trajectory was very much set forth for them. I chose a different route, <laughs> as did you, Jay. And once you do that, your relationship to the notion of ambition or what you believe is possible or even probable shifts dramatically. We talked about in our chrononormativity episode about how your age is shown on your body and your sense of movement and style because there are these standards of what you should have achieved at certain ages. By 30, you should be this. By 40, you should have that, etc., etc., etc. And why queer people often cannot be aged visually in the same way because we don't actually do that. So for me, for example, I, for the longest time, had no real sense of ambition in terms of the usual life trajectory. I had no ambition to own a home. For a very sad period of my time, I had no belief that I would have a lasting relationship. I, I just didn't believe that someone would love me the way I was. And therefore, I also had no place in my imagination that I could have a child, for example. So I had no ambition for that either. And when the opportunity came along, it was more of a shock <laughs> than anything else. <laughs> a nice one, a very nice one. I'm very pleased that we had the opportunities we do. Um, and as such, I'm very aware of our privilege to have that option. But until right before we actually did it, I genuinely had no belief or ambition that I could do that. And that goes also for any kind of professional success. I have what on paper and in real life as well, would be some serious mainstream success in my job. I mean, I am a principal consultant at a tech consultancy. I'm at the top of my game and things like that. And I had no ambition to be here. I just seemed to stumble from place to place to place without any real plan. And that's always been one of the questions that people have is, what do you want to do with your life? You're, you can obviously do this stuff. What do you want to do? And when you're struggling to survive, that is a very complex question because I don't want to make tons of money. Much as, you know, it'd be lovely to have gazillions of dollars or I suppose, I don't know, I could never imagine that. But I don't see the pursuit of money as the main goal and I don't think it ever has been for me. At the start of my last year of high school, the stock market was doing remarkably well. And a lot of the pupils were like talking about going into stock trading and all of that. And there was a lot of questions about my lack of ambition because I wanted to go and do science. And everyone's like, why would you want to go do science? You can go do this and make lots of money. And in October that year, if you are not aware, 1987, there was a ginormous stock market crash, which really impacted New Zealand because it was the first time that a lot of New Zealanders had personally been impacted by a stock market crash. And I kind of sat there well, at least my plans haven't had to suddenly change dramatically because everyone who had planned to take the money that they'd made trading on the stock market across the year and use that to fund the university, etc., etc., suddenly found that instead of having the ten or $20,000 that they thought that they had, they had maybe $10. Once you've seen that, the money that you've got in your bank account is the money that you've got to spend or to save up, but it can just disappear overnight if you put it into something that you don't have personal control over. And my ambition's always been to do stuff rather than to have stuff. And that is a ridiculous privileged place to be. 
and I don't know how I got here because I never had an ambition to be be here. This was never a driver to be here. This is ambition's always been a stumble across something that I enjoy and do it well, rather than I want to build my career. I think this with Thoughtworks is the first time I've actually had an ambition to be something. I don't quite know what that something was and ThoughtWorks, thank you for helping me kind of spend about five years figuring out what that was. But now I am the thing that I was like, I would like to be this. And that's the first time I've had actual ambition to do something, not just be, I want to get through this job. It's that drive. And I think there's something that a lot of queers are perceived not to have or not to have in the same way. The thing about ambition is it presumes opportunity. I know that um, communities who have been marginalised often cast as unambitious, lazy even, especially people of colour. Anybody who's different enough, Mm. they'll say, oh, um, you are in this position because you're lazy, not because of institutional discrimination, not because of deeply problematic historical and sociopolitical circumstance. No, 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 it's because you have no ambition and you're lazy. Ambition presumes the privilege of opportunity. You can't be ambitious without believing you somehow can get the thing you're ambitious for. Because why would you do that? In fact, it's psychologically really damaging. For me personally, I didn't believe I could ever own a home. I didn't believe I could ever have a stable home. I didn't believe I could have a child. I didn't believe I could have a partner. I didn't believe I could have a job. I didn't believe that money would ever be a factor that wasn't incredibly fleeting and possibly something I would always need to chase in order to survive so how could I have ever had ambition to be anything else or want for anything else my ambitions were to have money at the end of the week to pay rent to have enough money for food dear listener I did go to a middle class uh, school in the after the age of 10 and that education allowed me to be in certain situations that were safer than I would have been had I not had that. But I still ran away as early as I could possibly do it. And that meant that I was in a situation like, okay, I'm very different. I am going to be struggling. And I did. There were jobs I just did not get because of being trans. And and I don't speculate, dear listener. I happen to know. Mm -hmm. And also places I would like to have lived. I was run out of places literally where I would have liked to have lived. And so... The opportunity, I just didn't believe in it. Why would I believe that there was an opportunity to have these things? So why have ambition for it? I was lucky enough at around that time to be performing. I mentioned in the intro to these uh, episodes that I, basically what I used to be was a, a queer performer. We started on bar stages on Tuesday nights in random clubs in London. And then through some weird sense of osmosis and a culture that needed it and a community that really wanted it we gained some sense of uh, notoriety we became more popular we were able to do more work and slowly I was able to perform in bigger and bigger venues and occasionally actually even get paid for this you were uh, paid? Um, when I moved to Sweden, yes, I was paid <laughs> in London it was like oh, you did that show here's a fiver and a slap on the ass and, uh, and usually, some drinks tokens. Uh, if you're lucky, <laughs> if you're lucky, you might get the fiver. If you're lucky, you might get a drink. You definitely get the slap on the ass, though, uh, which you know was always appreciated. And uh, when I moved to Sweden, there were more opportunities here. Weirdly enough, for performers, and this is a slightly aside, in Sweden there is more money for things like performance, but. You only get hired to do it if you have gone through the traditional process to become an actor or a musician, as in you went to school uh, to do that thing. You were able to develop your skills through a normative process and therefore your name becomes associated with normative processes. Trying to become a performer the way I did here in this country is hard fucking work, I gotta tell you. So... When I moved here and suddenly I had a little bit of notoriety and I was able to get a few big jobs. The first job I had in Stockholm, first job I had in Sweden was performing in a very large opera for a very noted Swedish director. Happened purely by accident. I happened to be singing in a bar uh, in Stockholm because, you know, I just follow. I just kept doing what I used to do, dear listener, and started performing in bars. And they 
occasionally paid me and director happened to notice me and, and invited me to perform in this opera. And suddenly I was in this company of people, all of whom were lovely, had a very different relationship to ambition. Most of these people were career actors, a lot of them opera singers, who had been trained and worked in such a way that they had an ambition for what they were going to do next. We would all rehearse to this performance, and then we'd have the ambition for that performance to go well. And then as soon as the rehearsal period was over and we started performing, almost every actor was starting to look for their next project if they hadn't already gained one. Now, nothing against this, because I think that's sensible. If you're an actor and you're in a gig economy, you're going to be looking for your next job. But there was a sense of ambition of wanting to be more famous, to be in bigger projects, to do these things. To me, this was the biggest thing I was ever going to be in. I just assumed this was the last thing I was ever going to get to do. And for nearly every performance, small or big, I always presumed it would be my last. Now, that gives you an advantage as a performer. It means you're probably going to do your best work. But it's also desperately sad and depressing because I genuinely thought, well, I'm never going to get to do anything that's cool again. Because it didn't occur to me to have any ambition beyond, well, I'm super lucky. I got to do this. A couple of years later, I got to do a film that was a bit of a big deal again. And the same thing happened again. But the funny thing is, the film we made was a bunch of queers who never had any presumption that they could make a film. In fact, we started making that film um, with the presumption that we would probably get to show our friends. And uh, if we weren't accepted to any film festivals, Bitte, who was our director, had said that her plan was to take a VHS of the movie, put it in one of these VHS combo TVs, roll it in a wheelbarrow and stick it outside the cinema uh, at the uh, Stockholm Film Festival. And that was our plan. That was the height of our ambition. And then when we got some recognition, true shock. Mm. Absolutely wonderful. But again, I never presumed it would lead to anything. The experience with the opera was really enlightening because there were people there who didn't necessarily know that they were going to have another job after the one they were in, but had ambition to have another job and believed that they had the opportunity to have another job and so were actively seeking it. I was not. (laughs) As much as I would have liked that to be the case, I just assumed it wouldn't be. Now, whether that impacted my ability to have that or not, that's another question. The second experience with the movie, on the other hand, was a group of people who never imagined the kind of success or opportunity that a movie like the one we were making could have. We ended up premiering at the Berlin Film Festival. We were shown all around the world. Dicard has been shown in countries where being gays not legal Um, and it's been translated into several languages and there's Japanese releases and all sorts of stuff you can still see it on certain screens in Germany and Poland apparently uh, which is very cool apparently it's a thing there and that's wonderful it's a wonderful feeling to you know to have been part of something like that but I could never have imagined that I would even with the experience of several years performing on stages And having been cast in big productions and having been paid for this, I couldn't have imagined that I would do another thing that would have any success at all. So I've never had ambition for it. I've had friends who've had ambition, even queer performers when we've been in clubs, who've had ambition to be more famous. Fair enough. No shade, by the way. Or more successful or would like to be doing bigger things. I honestly, on a personal level never quite imagined that I could. And I think that was a significant disadvantage, but it also helped in some circumstances. It's that old adage of, you know, oh, um, I won't seek for love because I I don't want to be hurt by it. It's like, well, I didn't have an ambition for something I couldn't have, so I couldn't be hurt by it. For me, there's almost like a linear ambition that some people have the opportunity to have. If, if I have this thing, I can build it into the next thing, I can build it into the next thing. And it's like a linear building block towards a goal which is well-defined, which makes sense, which is congruent with who they are, congruent with what they're trying to do, all of those things. That's never been my experience either. Even though I've done things just because they seem like a really good idea at the time, I've changed jobs, I've changed roles, I've moved countries because it all just seemed like the right thing to do for me at the right time and I would figure it out. I also don't have that drive. I think at times there's been that opportunity to have that drive but I I wouldn't grab at it 
because it's hard enough surviving. And I think that's something that people who have more normative experiences of the world don't get when it's complicated. That lack of drive, like you said before, a lot of people who are non-normative, who are outside of that norm, are told that they don't have ambition or as a group that they don't have ambition. And it's not that we don't have ambition. It's just we can't see the opportunity or we can see the opportunity and we can't, we feel like we can't reach it because there's so many structural barriers between us and that opportunity. I've talked about job stuff and the number of jobs that I've gained, lost or never gained because of my queerness, because of my visibly queer demeanour and things like that. I also don't have a CV that looks like anyone else's CV. I don't have linear progression. I have bits and pieces going all over the place. We know how to make things happen. We know how to make things work. Once we've done something, we don't have that ambition to build it onto something else, to build it onto the next step. I feel this sometimes when people talk about, oh, you should be taking steps on the housing ladder. And I'm like, the hell what? Why would I want to do that? I'm a single person living alone. Why is there any need for me to do anything more? Why are you not happy with what you've got? Ambition is a weird, weird thing. And I think there's also an ambition for mainstream success sometimes, for being recognised in the normative mainstream, for being able to do more than just function in the normative mainstream, but to really get success there. And that's a hard one for queers and probably we'll dive into that at another point because I think that's a really, really big, deep one. But ambition can sometimes just be getting through the week. There was a brilliant one of I'm going to do the July challenge. The challenge is getting through every day in July. And I'm like, yes, that sounds the perfect July challenge. I'm just going to get through every single day and come out the end and and go, woohoo, I did July. Right, bring on the August challenge. Here's the thing that I think happens when you're under that level of systemic stress and all of those things. You can't see into a future that's more than a couple of weeks in the future. You can't have ambition if you can't see yourself in 10 years' time. It's very, very hard for me to imagine what I'm going to be like at 63. It's very, very hard for me to imagine what sort of thing I would like because I can't see that far into the future. I can manage couple of months maybe but I know when talking to friends and colleagues my peers at work they can talk about oh I'm planning this and I'm going to do this and and this is my five-year plan and I'm like what the you're not even fucking 30 and you have a five-year plan how how does that happen and there's a whole part of reasons why that happens but when you're under that systemic stress you, you just don't see enough in the future to have a goal to drive towards with your ambition This job that I currently have is the very first job I've had that has been regular. And it's still a contract, so it'll end. It's a Mm fixed-term contract. But it's the very first time that I've had a monthly pay that was guaranteed at a certain level. And I would do a thing for a longer period of time. I went to the doctor this morning and uh, I hadn't seen the doctor in a little while. It's a regular annual thing. And the doctor said to me as we were chatting, oh, are you still working as a secretary? Which is what I was doing at the time. I said, no, 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 I've got a new job. And he was like, oh, what's that? And I'm like teaching at a university. And he's like, oh, okay. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, it's a bit of a radical shift because that's my life. Like 20 years ago, I was a student performing, trying to get a performance career. Five years later, I had something of a performance career. Five other years later, I was a secretary and assistant another five years later. You know, my CV is all over the shop for that reason. I couldn't and still can't imagine thinking further ahead than I've been able to stretch a little. I can now think to probably December. Wow. Because there are a few things that will happen, hopefully, cross fingers between now and December. But I have no idea if they will actually happen Because there's the other nasty thing with ambition. I know by experience how many things can go wrong for any ambition that other people might think of as perfectly normal. The ambition to retain your job, the ambition to be able to rent a flat, or the ambition of being able to go into a store unmolested, you know, is (laughs) 
not an ambition that I haven't had significantly curtailed in the most obvious way very suddenly. So as much as I can ish project, I still don't want to. I don't want to believe that in the next month or two, a potentially probably good thing will happen. I cannot quite allow myself to believe that. So, of course, there's no way for me to plan for a career because how could I possibly develop the kinds of background you would need to have a career in the arts, to have a career in anything? Because I can't plan it out. It's going to be by accident. So it'll be luck, some privilege, privilege of, say, in my case, education, and my being able to read as cis, uh, my race, you know, my background, uh, my EU passport, my ability to move from country to country, because that's what I eventually had to do, is literally leave England, have any opportunity, really. So how can you plan when you feel that way? Because you can't think long term, everyone says that you're stuck into short term thinking. And this comes up a lot when people do poverty research and research around people who've been in economic struggles for a long time. And I've been there it changes how your mind works and it makes it much harder to plan in the long term. And this is something that I don't think comes across when people discuss ambition and planning. Sorry, this frustrates me because I'm starting to do some stuff on employability and working with people. And I see people who have the potential and they can't see where to go and they don't have the ambition to go there. And I can completely understand why that ambition is hard, but also why being knocked back will make people go, oh, no, it's too much, I'm going to walk away and, and go do something that's a lot less stressful or a, or a lot less ambitious because I know I can succeed at that. And there's all the stuff that normative society says to these people, but you're failing and you're doing this and you're doing that and you've got no ambition. It's like, they've got ambition. People want good stuff. People want an easier life. People want all of the stuff. There's systemic things against them, and when you have a barrier that literally stops your brain from being able to think long-term, because you're constantly having to think, do I have enough money for tomorrow? What can I do to make sure that I can put power and put food in the cupboard and do that for tomorrow? And when somebody says, where do you want to be in a year? You're like, I'm sorry, I was thinking about tomorrow. Your brain can't adjust in time. There's a famous psychological test that was done on kids from different backgrounds, specifically poorer backgrounds and more affluent ones. And the test is called, colloquially, the marshmallow test. And for those of you who don't know what this is, a child is put into a room. Of course, you know, you can just imagine the lab coats and the <laughs> people put into a room and a marshmallow is placed in front of the child. And the child is told, so fucked up, the child is told, I'm going to go out of the room. If you don't eat the marshmallow in between the time that I leave the room and come back, I will give you two marshmallows. It's supposed to measure delayed gratification. The general results have been, if you're from a poor background, you're probably going to eat the marshmallow in front of you. And the conclusion that was initially drawn was, well, they don't have ambition, right? Or they don't think ahead, or they can't consider delayed gratification. Of course, the real reason being, if you are poor, you eat the thing in front of you. Because you don't think about the potential. The guy could be lying. Yeah, trust. Trust completely. If I don't eat it and they come back and they take it away, I don't got the thing. No, but at least I ate one marshmallow and I can trust that I had the marshmallow in front of me. That's not ambition. That's being clever. That's (laughs) wisdom. And that's unfortunately wisdom produced through adversity. It's fucked up. That's the problem. I don't like the fact that my inability to look forward or to believe that something will remain there, even with this job that I have, I don't quite believe it'll be there next week. I'm on supposed vacation. P.S. That doesn't really happen because if you're an academic and especially if you're doing a PhD, you're never on vacation. One of these days I might take one. It'd be great. I have the ambition, dear listener, to take a vacation. I'm supposed to be on vacation, which means I don't have contact with my department and the people who work there. My brain immediately goes, well, that's the end of that job. Never going back. Because how can I possibly trust that I'm going back? I need the constant reassurance that your job and office still remains in the place where you left it. Because the permanence of this idea is just not there and it's shot. And it's really hard to explain that to some colleagues because they can't imagine that. I think I have exactly the same thing. And it shows up in me in a slightly different way in that everyone talks about how I'm constantly helping out with bids and driving the next thing and driving the next thing and not 
taking the time between projects, but also just constantly on, on, on. And it's like, yeah, because if I'm not, you might not want me. If I don't keep my foot on the accelerator, I don't trust that you're going to go, yeah, Jay did some good stuff and I think we should keep them around. I'm going to think, Jay did some good stuff, but what have I seen from them the last three weeks? So again, I'm on leave. I'm writing three talks that I'm going to deliver in Amsterdam at Pride. I'm doing three talks in three days. I haven't really written them yet. And yet I know that I'm going to spend the next week or so of holiday writing these talks because why would you not and it's kind of like that constant drive 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 and it means I fall over more I fall and collapse occasionally because you do if you're constantly got your foot on the accelerator in high stress jobs that's the thing we both know the research and personal experience shows that in order to get the same job as someone who's normative if you're from a marginalized background you need to be 150 percent more productive, more acceptable, Mm -hmm. more interesting, and still there's no guarantee you're going to get it. So, of course, I'm the same way. I constantly try try to overperform. The attempt to overperform causes me to burn out, make mistakes, actually leads to the very thing that I'm frightened of happening. And every time that little, even a tiny mistake happens, or if I have to say no to something, I immediately think, well, that's the end of my job. Because... Now they're going to go find somebody else, probably a cis dude, who believes he can get the job. That's the other thing. If you go into an interview, and Jay knows this through their study of employability and their considerations, I go into an interview and I'm going, there's no chance or there's a very good possibility that I'm going to be excluded from this position. If you believe and believe that the opportunity is there and you have every right to have it, you're going to walk in that interview with confidence, bravado, a sense of at-easeness, which when you're interviewing somebody, it's like, oh, well, that person seems to be at ease and confident. I bet they'd be a great person at X job. And that other squirrely person who's extremely nervous <laughs> is probably not. Maybe they are unwell. And it's like, well, no, they just don't believe you will ever give them the gig. So <laughs> it's a very vicious circle perpetuated by a system that is built to be discriminatory because let's not forget that this isn't and this isn't unintentional this is a feature not a bug and so we know this we're cognitive of Mm. this and still find it tremendously difficult to deal with because well maybe because we know that but yeah so where does that leave this notion of ambition because one of the other things and we haven't touched on this there is a moral element to ambition you're supposed to be ambitious. If you're not ambitious, then you are lazy. Laziness is immoral, especially if you come from a country that has a religious background. There's a morality to it. But also, you shouldn't want too much. You shouldn't be too ambitious. That's um, prideful. prideful, which also is a sin, so to speak, according to a book or mm-hmm. several. And being ambitious beyond one's station. And coming from England, I know all about this. You know, know your place, which has been said to me in lots and lots of different ways, literally, quite literally in occasion, but also figuratively in all sorts of ways. Like, how on earth could you have more ambition? Why do you think you, Josephine, should have a job in a particular environment? Because like, if you're an actor, you haven't had training at RADA. You haven't had training at the Uni Arts in Stockholm. No, because I was never going to get into that school. So how on earth could I possibly do that? So, yeah. Here is the worst job interview question to ask somebody, why do you think you'd be good at this job? Because the normative person, the person with the confidence, will sit there and spill you off with great confidence, I will be great at this job, because the person who is sitting there basically going, well, you're fucking young, I'm taking a shot and I'm trusting in you, but quite frankly, experience has told me people like me don't get jobs like this, but I'm I'm still stepping up to the plate to try yet again. You step up to the plate, they ask you this question, you try to give an answer, and because your brain is doing double, triple, quadruple time, trying to calm you over here, trying to pump you up here, trying to be a cheerleader here, and trying to formulate an answer, you come across as this disassembling not quite bare mess of twitches and of uncertainty and you will probably be a great person for this job you just cannot show it and the other one is of course so where do you see yourself in five years time and you know you're just my standard answer is in your job 
because with a very bored sound on my face, which never wins me any friends. And yes, there's sometimes you can tell when an interview has gone downhill because of the way the questions have been asked and you just basically throw shit at them. You're like, I know that I'm not getting this job. There is nothing I could do at this point because you have decided I'm not a culture fit or I'm not right for you. There is no ambition for me in this place. There is no ambition on your side to see someone like me succeed in this way. Actually, that's an interesting one. And this is where I think ThoughtWorks has been an interesting match. And sorry to keep mentioning where I work, but they have been very interesting in this, in that their ambition was to see someone like me fit into their environment. It, it was almost a mirrored ambition. It was one of those things of somebody saying, you've got the skills that we want. You seem to see the world differently. We would like you in our space. And that is possibly what I started to react to because it was people having the ambition to include me. That gave me the ambition that I could be there. I've been in that situation where I've been asked those questions and I've known I've given great interview and I've, I've answered it correctly and I've done the ambition thing. And I know also afterwards they go, oh, bit appetite, wasn't she? Mm. You know, reaching beyond her, her, uh, her means, I think. Mm. You know, and it's like, yeah, because you think that. Because of course you do. But to switch it around to something a little bit more positive, mm -hmm. because we've been talking about this in terms of jobs and careers, because that's often how ambition is couched. Because, of course, success cannot possibly happen in any other environment than in a career or by making mm -hmm. money. So ambition is obviously related to that. The ambition to do other things, the ambition to include, especially if you have any position of authority whatsoever, is a tremendously positive ambition. One of the things that I've been able to do in my life is do things that I never thought I could by trying because I didn't have this linear ambition in my mind. There is a certain freedom in knowing <laughs> you're not going to get mainstream success. So why not try something else? Now, don't get me wrong. I am nervous as hell, dear listener. Putting out a podcast every so often, putting out a podcast like this is terrifying to me. Um, but one of the things I did when I wasn't very well is I started to draw pictures uh, it helped me recover it helped me center my mind it was for me and then one day I was encouraged to put those pictures on Instagram uh, and I did and had some measure of lovely response initially from friends that was great and then after a while from people who weren't friends of mine yet from other people who were strangers and then after a while some measure of interest would you draw this picture for me? Can we use your picture for that? And all of a sudden, the thing I'd been doing for myself, that had been for myself and I'd be terrified to share, was now something that could be a job-ish. Like I was getting paid for this. I've been paid for several pieces of my artwork, which is a huge idea to me. I'm like, oh my God, that means I somebody wanted it enough to give me actual money for it? Wow. Never would I have believed or had the ambition to be that. But I did it. And I can draw an exact line from doing that to the job I currently have. If I hadn't started drawing and posting on Instagram, I would not have the job I have now. Because of an interesting set of knock-on effects of taking that chance and having the privilege and opportunity and the luck of having that recognised. I'm very grateful for that opportunity, but it certainly wasn't the usual way. Now, do I have an ambition to be an artist? Do I have an ambition to be famous? God, no. I've seen way too many people get destroyed online for being trans and being successful. Jesus Christ. I, I saw a very innocuous tweet. So, like, you know, aren't Sundays lovely? Basically, by a trans author the other day. Posted it up. And after a while, completely got dogpiled. Mm. How dare you suggest that Sundays might be sunny? Uh, you must be a liberal <laughs> cuck trans person. And someone asked... Like literally the tweet afterwards, somebody said, what on earth is it about this tweet that people found so awful? And the person responded and said, I found that if a tweet gets more than a certain number of likes or interest or engagement, I will eventually get dogpiled no matter what I say. So no, I have no interest <laughs> in that kind of recognition of fame. And yet I'm in an industry that builds on that. The idea of being an academic is that your work gets read, which means you get invited to places, which means you put on deuses. I don't have that as an ambition because I can't imagine that being the case. Everything in my career trajectory suggests that I should. Now, will it happen? Maybe. 
I've been lucky enough to perform on stages and have recognition. I've been lucky enough to make art and people want to see it. I was offered the chance to share my art in an exhibition and COVID sort of scuppered that. But I want to apologise right now, weirdly enough, to the people who offered me that opportunity because I would let my reactions to them peter off. I was ill at the time. I was unwell, so I couldn't imagine being physically able to do it. But I also couldn't quite imagine doing this. I couldn't quite believe that they would want me to put my art on the wall and someone would want to watch it or buy it. So it was very easy for, to let that opportunity run past. And I never really explained that to the people who offered me the job several times, I might add. And maybe I'll take this opportunity to write to them. But in a weird way on this podcast, I realized I need to apologize to them because my lack of belief and ambition that I could be of interest as an artist has led me to limit myself. So my ambition has to become to believe in myself a bit more, to accept that I could be successful by another metric. And if I do become lucky enough to be in a position of authority for any length of time, or in a position of any influence for any period of time, say as a teacher, I would like my ambition to be to provide opportunities and ambition for others to do the same thing. To believe that, yes, you too can do this thing. And you too can reach and become an artist, become an academic, become whatever you want to be because you have the ability and we will find you the opportunity, even if we have to squeeze you in somehow. Mm -hmm. I want to do that for other people. I've been lucky enough to have been on the receiving end of people who've wanted to do that for others. I think that's very much where I'm at, of wanting to make teams inclusive, wanting to make, but also finding ways to get young people who are non-normative in all these various ways into tech. And the reason I'm saying it's into technology, because that's the industry I'm in. And I know that there's opportunities there. I know there's opportunities for people who think differently. And there are opportunities in places. And it's not a lack of ambition. It's a lack of being able to take those opportunities because I I know like Josephine there's been times where I've ha- I've let things slide I've not followed up on those conversations people have offered me help and six months later they still haven't received even an email response from me saying oh thanks for the offer I can't quite do it at this time and I kind of need to go back through my mailboxes and find all of those lovely people who have messaged me trying to help me and trying to engage with me and have just received a blank because I wasn't in a space to pick it up at the time. I wasn't in a space to do that thing at that particular time. I also follow with Josephine on that. I am in a position of a little bit of influence, and I am in a position not of any kind of power, not in any kind of position like that, but I can say to people who are employing people, here's a different way of seeing people. Here's a different way of seeing those wild CVs. Here's a different way of seeing those people who turn up, who are itchy and tetchy and don't seem to have ambition. Giving them the space just to be in a stable job and have a stable income for a period of time is such a fucking game changer when you've been having to think, where do I get money next week? I've got rent due. I think we've covered it. Have we covered it? Do you think we've covered it? Are we ambitious on ambition? Which question would you like me to answer first? (laughs) I think we've established that in order to believe that one can, you need to have some sense of belief that you have the opportunity and the security from which to act. Some people are amazing and can do it anyway. And I have tremendous admiration for that because they are trailblazers. They're the people who have led ahead and has made it possible for us. One of whom is, in my life, is Kate Bornstein, who we spoke to last podcast. And there are others. And we're planning on talking to some of them. To me, it's a tremendous joy to do this with you, Jay, because I can learn something about myself. I have the ambition to share the voices of others who have inspired that belief with you, dear listener. I have that ambition to have those conversations. 
Um, well, it, it leads me to the last order of business, which is, as always, Jay, as we finish our episode, to ask you whether or not you'd like to talk about a specific subject next time. And next time, do you want to consider how breathtaking Keanu Reeves is? As always, yes, the, uh, is the answer. Uh, I mean, because I can't play a game well enough to play anything other than Skyrim. We've been proving that over the last, oh, however many days that I have been here. I get my ass kicked by a 10-year-old in anything that requires timing, button decisions or anything like that. But you took me through the correct scenes in Cyberpunk 2077 to show me the Keanu Reeves. And I (laughs) found that character breathtaking because it was Keanu Reeves, but uh, an avatar Keanu Reeves. But the weirdest thing was the way that his sentences were constructed. When we talk... There's a sentence end and then you move on to the next sentence and there's like weird little slurs and blurs and things that we do. And people can usually tell when you've taken a couple of sentences and strung them together. And somehow in Cyberpunk 2077, the Keanu Reeves and many of the other voice actors seem to have been told to read a sentence and then read the next sentence and the next sentence. Oh, yeah like that and it just sounds so weird there's an extra beat in there that feels so wrong and yet Keanu is breathtaking in it as well but it loses some of his almost surfer dudeness because his surfer dudeness in his talk is that blur between the lack of full stops the lack of that breathing so it should be like finish a sentence oh yeah And it's like the sentences all come from a neutral emotion going forward. They don't come from the ending emotion of the previous sentence. Or is that just me over-reading a production technique into the way that somebody is potentially told to deliver lines as a voice actor for a game? It's possible. I mean, that's the funny thing with voiceover work. It's surprisingly varied. It depends on what you're doing, especially with a game. That's the thing, because games are interactive depending on how you interact, especially with dialogue, you would choose to record in different ways depending on what you're doing, Mm. right? And so it might work very well to have single sentences because then you're supposed to prompt with another Mm. sentence of your own and then it's supposed to carry on. In this particular game, I mean, Cyberpunk 2077 has many problems. Many, many problems. It is a deeply flawed game. I wrote about it for a chapter the other day and I was trying to think of a... Nice, accurate. Nice and accurate? Yeah, and I was trying to... Yes, nice and accurate, as uh, as in uh, Granny... No. Agnes Nutter As in Agnes Nutter Witch would have put it. Yeah, I was trying to think of a way that would be accurate, but not too (laughs) pejorative, because it was an academic text. I tried to say, uh, when it came out, the game was not received well. (laughs) (laughs) Including by LGBT people, for, for very good reasons. So it's a little tricky. I don't actually know. I'd be interested to find out whether or not it was recorded the way you suggested. Keanu, give us a call and tell us. <laughs> Keanu, yeah, please feel free to, if you're listening, and I presume you are, uh, feel free to, to get in touch and tell us how you recorded Cyberpunk 2077. Uh, addendum. I know a game that doesn't do that and produces vocals that are breathtaking. See, we talk dear listener, about how Keanu Reeves is breathtaking, and I believe that Keanu Reeves is breathtaking. However, there is one other character that I do think might be breathtaking as well, for me personally, and that's uh, Lady Dimitrescu, (laughs) (laughs) whose signed picture on my desk Jay just pointed to. Also Um, known as the Tall Stompy Lady. She is the Tall Stompy Lady from Resident Evil Village, voiced by Maggie Robertson, and it is a fabulous character. And I know for a fact that they recorded the dialogue at the very same time that the actor who was doing the um, physical acting, because what they did was they did motion capture. So they were enunciating the words, recording it at the same time as they were doing the physical action. So at least some of the recording was done that way. So, for example, there is a delicious scene where she um, uh, literally stands up and flips the table when she's pissed. You know, she picks up a dresser and hurls it across the room and great anger and they do a little behind the scenes sort of image of that and how it was done and the voice being recorded at the same time and I thought it was fabulous and 
apart from the fact that it's Lady Dimitrescu and she is breathtaking to me and many, many others, I kind of loved watching how, I mean, this is it. I teach game design. So I, I'm really interested in how these things are made and how they're processed. But I really loved actually, to, to make it a little serious, how they incorporated the actor and how they really, really built up how this person was speaking and moving at the same time. That Those two things go together. Games can become very sterile when that care is not taken. Sometimes if the care is not taken thematically, Cyberpunk 2077, or in terms of dialogue recording, Cyberpunk 2077, <laughs> but they still incorporate the breathtaking uh, qualities of Keanu Josephine took me through and showed me Lady Dimitrescu and the very scary game that, again, I would not be able to play. And that didn't have that funny, weird, breathy thing that Cyberpunk 2077 seemed to want to do to convince me that it was real because it didn't need it. Like, all the characters seemed to breathe and move. Naturally, they weren't, like, randomly vibrating up and down. Their bodies moved, and I think that shows because Cyberpunk, it felt like a bad animation of a comic. It's good 3D rendering and things like that, but there's not life behind what's being captured. It's an artifice of life and they're trying to get there. Whereas Lady Dimitrescu and those people did actually feel like real people, which makes them really scary. But maybe it's scarier because you could see it as being not artificial. The cyberpunk thing is not in the Uncanny Valley yet. Lady Dimitrescu, that is almost reaching that Uncanny Valley of feeling real but feeling fantasy at the same time because the setting is so fantastical and the damage that you can do. Although speaking of damage, oh my God, the writer's revolution falling the kilometre and not being like a paste on the snow, that was a gorgeous uh, separation from reality. But it's that what's hyper-real, what's surreal and what's not even able to be real even though it looks real even though it's attempting to look real there's a realness factor and that plays with your expectations of what's going on inside the game and how you emote and we all know that you can emote completely when presented with a line of text or a little pixelated doodad that goes boing 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 on um pixels well, in my course, not to get in the wing, this is fun debate, Alex. When I teach, actually, I start with teaching on a couple of games that do exactly what you just described, which is one of them is called Thomas Was Alone. And Thomas Was Alone follows the emotional exploits of a, I believe it's a um, square, a long rectangle and a triangle uh, as they traverse a geometric world that is incredibly simple. And yet their personalities come through beautifully through a combination of dialogue and it's very simple animation and when I teach on it it's like look you don't need to have very very expensive very very fancy graphics or interfaces in order to create an emotive experience this game literally shows you that the thing about cyberpunk is I genuinely don't know how they recorded it I imagine I could probably find out and it's possible that they did the motion capture and it's possible that they recorded it just like they did with Resident Evil but I would be critical of cyberpunk because it lacks a authenticity. It lacks a bit of a soul. It's horrible to say that. I mean, somebody, there's so many Keanu's people. in it. I mean, how can I have no soul with Keanu, well, the breathtaking Hollywood helper yeah, in it? That's the thing. There are some genuinely beautiful moments in that game. But the story of the how it was constructed is so sad because there's so many reports of the ways in which the staff were crunched really badly, the um, behaviour of some of the staff higher-ups who were pushing this game out the door without being really properly fixed, and then there was this whole nonsense about you know, the ways in which trans people are really badly represented, and their reaction to that was not good either. And then this game comes out, and it feels half-baked and half-done. It has these occasional beautiful moments, many of which involve the breathtaking galleries. And what is it about that game that feels like it doesn't have substance and yet a simpler game like Thomas Was Alone has all of the heart? Or Hug a Wave. Or Hug Wave. Hug Wave. Hug Wave, yes. The, the Hug Wave is a game to listener by some students of mine. I would love to claim any kind of credit uh, on that game. I cannot and I will not because they were students of mine. I looked at the game twice during, you know, a couple of times during 
um, production, but they did. Oh, I, I, I feel weird. The students of mine did this wonderful yes. do, job, which sounds an awful lot like, oh, but of course I had this giant influence on what they did. Mm. No, this is entirely their work. Produced a wonderful game called Hug Wave, which you can download on itch.io. And it is a very simple interaction, a very simple um, rhythm game that at the recent Gotland Game Conference swept many, 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 many awards. Uh, they they won two, but they, you know, they were in nominated for a lot more <laughs> and they, they did extremely well. I'm very proud of them. It's very simple interaction, very simple idea, but not an uncomplicated notion. It has to do with alienation and wanting to be close and this closeness that is achieved through um, just engaging. And it's beautiful. It's a genuinely beautiful game. That's where I think things in cyberpunk doesn't feel like it's got that warmth. And to say Resident Evil has warmth is very wrong. No. (laughs) (laughs) Just because you love big stompy lady, tall stompy lady, does not mean... But it's it's a game about desolation and and, and zombies and crawling down chutes and having your arm chopped off and things like this. And you're just grinning as I as I try to remember the, the points no, you told me No, 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 you, it's quite accurate. It, it, no, it's highly camp is what it is. I mean, yes, I think obviously the game can be scary to, to anyone and, and that's perfectly reasonable. It is a horror game, but it is it has this delightful campness. None of it makes a blind bit of sense. Oh, God, no. And, you know, the protagonist... Oh, you were trying God. to explain to me what was going on and I'm just sitting no, there looking at no. you going, I play Skyrim and this makes no fucking sense. The plot... Yeah, you know, it's it's about the ludicrousness of it. But there is some wonderful environmental storytelling. For example, Lady Dimitrescu is a, of course, the the countess, the aristocrat living in a castle that oversees this village in an improbable way, and she is the you know the quintessential vampire aristocrat who stands nine foot tall surprisingly, and has three vampire daughters. But as you go through the castle, you start to learn that, in fact, no, no, nobody who identifies as a man is allowed in the castle at any time. And that this is an entirely sapphic sort of environment. How is the protagonist there then? Or is he oh, no, he, he, yeah, being he, declared not a man for, for insert reasons? Oh, no, no, he, he intrudes on the castle. Ah. And, and if you intrude, well, then you're lunch. Oh, that's why that's why he's to keep trying to dodge out of the way of her. Oh, yeah. You know. So every time he crawls out the hole and she's around, he has to kind of crawl back in and wait for her to go off. Yeah, because ah. he's lunch. But it's deliciously camp, and there's all this queer subtext. Queer subtext, by the way, that I have written about for a new <laughs> for a book that's about to come out. Uh, I don't think I can tell the title just yet. There might be NDAs involved, but uh, I've written a chapter on this sort of thing. And when it comes I, out, when it we'll comes put, out, I'll tell you. We'll put it in the Twitter. We will put it in the Twitter, which is where you can go to interact with us. Twitter.com slash it is complicated, as in, in it, okay, because it's, it's complicated, right? Twitter.com slash it is complicated without the last E on the end, because Twitter wouldn't allow us to put and, in more uh, and letters. And it just complicate, just didn't look right, no. which is why I took the E out and just put the D on, but I couldn't do apostrophe D because that would have taken up the space of the E. Hey, Elsie. Hello, cat, who is not a cat. Yes, our cat-like creature has arrived and is... Uh... I have determined, having met Elsie, that she may very well be. She could possibly be from the Matrix. She could be one of the Matrix's Keanu's or Carrie Ann Moss's or something like that, reanimated or somehow re-embodied in cat form. And they are trying to figure out the controls, which is why she has the weirdest squeak meow and attempts to do things that are cat-like but are not truly cat. Oh, I love that. So she's attempting to cat, but she's not quite uh, able to because she's from another dimension. Yes. Right, got yes, it. Yes, yes. Um, this is a likely explanation, and I think uh, Occam's razor applies. So, <laughs> um, so yes, it is complicated. Is our a Twitter account where you can go and interact with us and tell us what you think about uh, things. You can also find us on Patreon. Patreon.com. It is complicated with an E. All one word. Uh, all one word. If you feel the inclination, please feel free to support us. All the money that we collect there goes towards our interviews, as we said in an episode very recently, and will go towards paying those people who come and share their voices because we thoroughly believe that anybody who comes and does that should be paid. Because all work is work. Yes, this is true. All work is work. And 
if you don't feel so inclined or you can't or don't want to, no problems at all. Come back to us next time here uh, on our podcast. We're all good podcasters. And if you'd love to leave us a rating or review, that would be well ace because that would help other people find out about us. We are a little queer podcast. We are tagged as queer. We are tagged as explicit because, well, talking about queer shit, you, you kind of gotta. Though we don't necessarily have the ambition to uh, take over the world with our podcast, we would love for people to be able to hear it. So if you feel so inclined, please feel free to do that because it helps it get to other people. With that note, perhaps we can finish up. I've lost my guitar. You, I think... Bugger. Uh, <laughs> plinky, plonky, plinky, plonky, la, 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 pow. This is the end. I've never seen a more disgusted look upon your face than me attempting to do that. And now that we're in person, you can see it in full 3D. Hi, Elsie. Right, everything's gone to shit. (laughs) Take care, everyone. Love you. Bye. Bye.